We're in 1 Kings, uh, and today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 24 today. Uh, so um, I'm going to read... I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, but we're going to look at all, all 24 verses, first 24 verses. And um, so also I should just let you know the, the text that we're looking at um, is kind of a, a big picture kind of story of the beginning of what happens right after Solomon uh, is no longer the king. And they're trying to figure out who's going to be the king. And so uh, it's not a particularly long text and it's not a particularly long sermon. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it is at looking at the sovereignty of God. And so, um, hopefully I can try to, even though when you talk about the sovereignty of God, there's not necessarily some direct application points. I've tried to put in some that will be helpful for you in your life. Thinking about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God is, uh, when you think about it is, it's not necessarily something that you can draw direct application points for right now, uh, as much as it's something that's hopefully, uh, being, uh, taught to you over your entire life so that Sunday in, Sunday out, Sunday in, Sunday out, you have a collection of understanding of the sovereignty of God so that when, because it will happen, after many, many, many times of being taught about the sovereignty of God, when tragedy finally hits, you have this deep core understanding of the sovereignty of God so that when tragedy hits, you know how and you believe in the Lord enough that you can go through it. So sermons like this today are, are not necessarily like, uh, this is something that you're doing wrong. So stop. It's not really one of those, like w- one week I got it and I can make a, a quick change. These kinds of s- sermons are a collection of things as we go through the, the, the word of God that he, he builds into us through, uh, years so that, or, or months for a long extended period of time, as we see his sovereign hand and the collection of seeing a big picture view of God so that when we finally come up to something that happens in our life that's difficult. It's not just today's sermon, but it's 25 other sermons on the sovereignty of God all coming together so that whenever we hit a tragedy, which happens, we live in a Genesis three world. Um, we have this deep belief on the, on who God is. And so today is, is a sermon that's part one of 25 other sermons that you've heard on the sovereignty of God that all come together one day so that when, when something happens in life, you have a good understanding of who God is. So anyway, I think it's helpful to kind of understand what I'm going for uh, today and what I think the Lord wants us to learn today before we even get started. Nevertheless, uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 15, uh, and, but we're going to go through, as I said, 1 through 24. So if you're able, I'd love for you to stand with me as we, as we read, honoring the word of God together. Uh, after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, Thanks be to God. And you're just thanking the Lord that he would be so kind and so good to give us his word. And of course, you're also wanting to obey it uh, after we after we hear from him this morning. So starting in chapter 12, verse one, <clears throat> Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. There Jeroboam returned from Egypt and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days and come again to me. So the people went away. So Rehoboam's going to decide. He's going to decide. This is what he does. He goes to a couple different counselors. Verse six, the king Roboam took 
took counsel with the old men who had stood before his, uh, before Solomon, his father, while he was still yet alive saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? They say to him, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him, his peers with him and stood before him. And they said to him, um, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put to us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to the people who say this. Your father, Solomon, obviously made your yoke heavy, uh, <clears throat> but you lighten it. For us, you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. This is just a Hebrew colloquialism. Uh, Now, whereas my father laid upon you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam uh, and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day. That was the advice. And here's here's the declaration. So Jeroboam and, and all the people came to him on the third day as the king Uh, said, come to me on the third day. And the king answered to the people harshly and forsaking the counsel of the old men that had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your, your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen um, to, for the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he may, might fulfill his word, which the king spoke by Adahijah, the Shalonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. I pray that as we look at a story 3,000 years ago about the transfer of the monarchy from Solomon uh, to Rehoboam and really Jeroboam at the same time from the north and the south. Uh, and we think, how in the world does this story have anything to do with me today? Uh, and what are things that I can learn from it that you would open our minds, open our hearts, Holy Spirit, come and teach us now and let us see that um, we have much to learn and that we have much that we should uh, understand and believe this morning about you, God. And so come now, speak through me. I am absolutely uh, dependent upon you this morning so that anything can uh, useful or helpful or true that can be said. Um, it all comes from you. And so, God, please come and speak through me, but all to us, to all of our hearts. Would you come and open our hearts and open our minds to see um, the word here? And ultimately, that we wouldn't just learn true things, but ultimately that our affections would be pushed and moved towards Jesus. That every text, as John 5 says, is about Jesus and that we would see um, our, our good and only true King Jesus in this text. And that our hearts would rejoice in the good news of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So I thought it would be helpful uh, because I I really have kind of three main things I want to talk about sovereignty today. Uh, I thought it would be helpful before I go into those three things to put up the outline. So go ahead and put up the outline screen. This is an outline of the 24 verses uh, that we're going to look at. There's two main parts. Uh, you can see the two main parts are the assembly. We just read that uh, in verse 15 where they, uh, Rehoboam said, what's going to happen? This is what's going to happen. And they talked to him. And then after that, what was kind of the aftermath of this horrific decision where he's like, well, my dad disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. You know, he, he ups the game. And so that's kind of the second part. But you can see uh, we read the first 15 verses. This is the assembly. Uh, and so they come to him uh, and, and Rehoboam in the first five verses and they appeal to him like Rehoboam, uh, 
your dad's gone. Looks like you're going to be king. Will you be a good king? Will you not be a good king? And they have the appeal. And so he goes and he goes, well, I'm going to consult with my advisors. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. And that's what we saw in verse 6 to 11. And in that, in, in 6 and 7, uh, was the, the advice of the older gentlemen, um, the advice from the older advisors. And then uh, in 8 through 11, is the advice from the younger advisors or his peers. And we, we saw the difference. The older advisors give him sage, good advice. Uh, you're going to be a king for a long time. So since you're going to be king for a long time, it would be smart to be kind to the people, to overflow with generosity, etc. You, you should think the long game. And the, the, the young, the young uh, peers we saw in 8 through 11 say, no, no, no. You've got to be a hard guy up front. Show them who's boss up front. And so he, he takes their advice uh, and he goes back to them and declares to them in 12 through 14. I'm going to be I'm going to be harder than my dad, basically. Uh, and then we have the explanation of the event, which tells us here's why this happened in verse 15. Now, uh, just so you know, in, in this set of verses that we're looking at, verse 15 and verse 24 have these kind of little declarations uh, that help us understand that. What, how the Lord's hand is involved in this. So 15 kind of summarizes it there. 1 through 15, 15 summarizes it. And when we get to 16 through 24, again, 24 gives us a little summary verse again. So they're, they're very similar, 15 and 24. And then we get to the second part. Well, this is what happens then in the aftermath. And so you have tragedy that happens in verse 16 through 20, uh, whenever this happens. Uh, and then the restraint that the Lord provides some, some kindness in verses 21 through 24 as well. And that's kind of the, the big picture outline of, of what's going on. Just so you can kind of, uh, it's helpful for me to kind of know what's going on. We, we read half of it, but nevertheless, uh, that's what's going on in, in chapter 12. So you can leave that up for a few more minutes. So it'll be up there for all you type A'ers that need to have this written. It'll be up there a little bit longer, but not too much long. So you better write fast. Um, so when you read, when you read verse, uh, our chapter 12, what do we do with a chapter like this? What, what's, What's the important thing whenever you read in your own personal devotional reading or as a, as a preacher, when I read chapter 12 and I want to try to help you, and I've already given my hand away of what I try to do, what is it that I think you should take away when we read chapters like this? Um, it seems <clears throat> easiest, but not necessarily correct to take chapters like this and just moralize it as in, Read this and say, what's the moral lesson you need to learn? Uh, so to take this text and teach and preach morals as in, well, you should, this is what I think you should not do, right? You should take this text and say, see, what you need to learn to do is listen to the older, wiser counsel in your life instead of the younger counsel in your life. Older people are smarter, younger people are dumber. And so listen to the older people in your life. And while, of course, on the whole, if someone gave you this advice from this chapter, it's not necessarily wrong, right? But is that what the writer wants us to get from this? Does the writer want us to just moralize chapters, especially as you go through the Old Testament? Is the writer genuinely interested in you just getting moral lessons as you go through the Old Testament. It's not necessarily, I think, what the writer wants. Now, of course, uh, helping you become a better decision-making and improving your decision-making skills as a young person or even perhaps as an older person or even perhaps not succumbing to peer pressure. Like the, his peers could have been like, hey, come on, man, uh, Rehoboam, really be strong here. It, and so what we take from that is don't let peers 
pull you in. Like, of course that's true, right? And that shouldn't happen. But you can take kind of a step back. Is, is, is the writer of the Bible wanting me to just learn moral lessons? Is that what he's wanting? So when I, whenever I approach a text to teach it, uh, I have this tendency to, and we all do, when we read it, it's to say, ooh, right on the surface, the, the obvious thing is God wants you to learn to take good advice from older, wiser people and not bad advice from young people who haven't had you know, life happen to them and they don't know what they're talking about. Um, of course... Good advice is smart to follow. Read the Proverbs, right? We know that that's, that's, that's true. But is that the point of the text? That's not the point of the text. That's not what, as you read through the Old Testament, that God wants you to necessarily grab on. Because as we know in John chapter 5, I'm pretty sure it's verse 38. Jesus says, you, and he's only talking about the Old Testament. You read the scriptures and they're all talking about me. And so Jesus himself wants us to realize that... <laughs> Reading through narratives of 1 Kings chapter 12, they're supposed to point you to Christ. And so what we want to do is not just see the easy things on the, on the pages of the text. Uh, and you say, well, how in the world do I get good at that? You, you will. And uh, the Holy Spirit. That's how. So uh, when we read texts like this, we don't want to just take the, the easy little lessons and say, God wants me to take good advice. God doesn't want me to be mean to people. God wants me to not... Treat them with scorpions and be nice. And so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, instead, he wants to see, helps us to see Christ. And so uh, when we read just verse 1 through 15, um, the, the point of the text or the meat of the text is right there. Uh, and the writer's just screaming it out for you to make sure you see it in verse 15. Uh, and so I, I, when I read it, maybe we just kind of breezed through it and you didn't, you didn't see it and, it. and that's fine. But I want to make sure you see this. So we read this horrific kind of account where this young king comes in and he's got all this potential. He's got all this possibility. Older people give him great advice. Younger people give him terrible advice. He's going to follow the younger people. He has this dumb little comment. Well, I'm not allowed to say dumb at my house. I should stop saying it in sermons. He has this not smart little comment. Um, that's what we say in, in the chamber's house. Uh, my little finger, sorry, Calla, is thicker than my father's thighs. What a, what a ridiculous little statement he makes to it publicly to his people, right? And so, but here's, here's the point, right? The writer wants you to get this in verse 15. So the king... Did not listen to the people. He didn't listen to the older council. And then here it is. Here it is. The, the four, the, the why for it was a turn of affairs. Here it is brought about by the Lord. It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which is why in the very beginning I talked about this sermon is about the sovereignty of God. This is about the sovereignty of God. Why would a sovereign God bring these things about? These are huge, important questions for us to try to figure out. Because in our own life, either things come to us or in our own decision making, we have bonehead decisions, right? Or bad things happen to us. And here, the writer wants us to make sure the point of the text, the meat of the text is, this is a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. All of this was happening because Yahweh had this whole thing on in mind. Yahweh had this whole thing. More on that coming. But the point of, I think, chapter 12 is not moralization of good decision-making, bad decision-making, learn from that. I think the bigger point of the chapter 12 is the sovereignty of God and learning about the sovereignty of God in our own lives so that whenever we're walking through life, we have this core belief in the sovereignty of God. The main point of the text is the sovereignty of God. If you wonder what this means, just... 
I could read a thousand verses, but here's one. Psalm 115.3, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's what the sovereignty of God is. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, make sure you, I say this hopefully all, over and over and over, uh, that you don't turn that into a bad thing, right? Now, if we do all that we please because we're sinful, <laughs> that's not going to be good. But God who's God and always good when he does what he pleases, it's always good. Even from our perspective, we might not think, wow, that I don't get it, but we're, we're finite. Who are we to ever make judgment on the, the things that God does? All that he does, he does um, because he's, he's sovereign. He does what he pleases. And when he does what he pleases, it's always right. It's always good. It's always exactly what needs to happen. And so, this whole thing happened from the sovereignty of God. He does all that he pleases. It means God has the last word. God's in charge. And because God's in charge and God reigns supremely, we, as his people, as his followers, should humble ourselves before him and trust him. We should humble ourselves before him and trust him. And that's the point of the text. That's the point of today's sermon. Now, uh, you might not be going through a tragedy right now. And so you're thinking, well, I don't have a, I don't have a, a direct application then, but maybe you are. And hopefully as you hear about the sovereignty of God, it will be a sweet salve to your soul. So more on verse 15 in just a minute, but um, let's, let's look at the text. So verse one through 15, three, uh, three important notes about the sovereignty of God, three important notes about the sovereignty of God in our lives. One, the sovereignty of God is stronger than foolish man-made plans. The sovereignty of God is stronger than foolish man-made plans. So as we looked at this text, it was a foolish man-made plan that, that was brought about. Rehoboam took the advice of the younger peers uh, and decided that he was going to be mean. That he's going to be a tough person, tougher than his dad Solomon. But the sovereignty of God is actually stronger than that. And so as you look at it, Rehoboam went to Shechem, you know, his, his turn to be king. Uh, and as he goes there, uh, as soon as he gets there, Jer- Jeroboam, who, who had kind of given Solomon some problems, he had left. He was afraid. He hears that Solomon's dead. He comes back and he's trying to figure out if he's going to be, get to be king or not. And, uh, and just to make sure we, I want to make one little comment on verse four, but we're going to get to that. And so Jeroboam comes back uh, and they sent and they called him Jeroboam. And all the assembly of Israel came to Rehoboam and said, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, this is just a side note. This is not necessarily pertaining to the main point of the text. But nevertheless, I just want to make sure, uh, if I can, give us little chances to, to learn how to be great readers of the Bible. So here when we see verse 4, we see Jeroboam make this comment about Solomon. And the comment is, hey, Solomon, your dad, made our yoke heavy. Now, we can read that as... Gospel truth. Solomon was a tough king. Or we can read it as the writer of First Kings is taking Jeroboam's comment and inserting it into the narrative and say, Jeroboam's perspective was Solomon was a tough king. So we have to make this, this informed decision as a good reader. Was Solomon a really tough king? Or is it Jeroboam's decision and the writer isn't necessarily agreeing with that. He's just saying Jeroboam thinks that Solomon was a really tough king. Because when we read that, we, can, we, we might just think, oh man, 
according to the Bible, Solomon was a bad king and he was tough. And I don't think that's the right read. I don't think that's the right read. I think Solomon was actually a good king, a really good king. And so uh, I think this is the opinion of Jeroboam. Uh, and it's not necessarily the opinion of everyone. And it's not necessarily the truth. The writer is telling us what they believed, not necessarily telling us what's true. Just, it's just a, a, a hint towards reading narrative, especially whenever uh, they're telling us this is someone's view and this is what they think. It doesn't necessarily mean it's what is the case. But back to the text. That's just a side note. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, that's what they thought. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Solomon was this horrific king. And I don't think that he was. Back to it. Although he did build a temple and he worked them. He worked them to build, build that temple, which we've seen. Back to it. Verse 4. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the, the, the hard service of your father and his yoke on us and we'll serve you. And he said, go away for three days. And we know that he, he takes counsel here with the older men. And he should have uh, taken their advice. But nevertheless, he takes the younger, uh, the younger peers' advice. And he tells them when he brings them back together. On the third day, verse 12 through 13. And he said, he spoke harshly to him. Uh, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young My father uh, made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so here we have this, this foolish man-made plans to, that he's decided he's going to be a tough king. But the truth was that the sovereignty of God was all over this. Even though it was still, without a doubt, Rehoboam's real Moral conscious decision. He chose to do that. But Solomon, I mean, I'm sorry, but God, uh, Yahweh, was sovereign over this. Uh, It was a turn of affairs, as it says in verse 15, brought about by the Lord. Yahweh didn't just have this thing in mind, but he was bringing it about. Now, here's why I say this, because in one chapter over, in 1 Kings chapter 11, if you have, uh, let's start at verse 30. First Kings chapter 11, verse 30, we see a prophet named Ahijah is going to let them know that this is going to happen. So if you start in first Kings chapter 11, Ahijah laid hold of a new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he, Ahijah said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, so this is a a prophecy saying, Jeroboam, you're going to be king of the 12 tribes. Rehoboam's going to be king of the other two. And here's how it's going to go down. And this is because of Rehoboam's decision-making behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes, but he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant, David, and the sake of servant Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen out of the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshiped the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the gods of Moab, Milcom, the God of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David, his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my, of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands and I will give you 10 tribes. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that my David, my servant, um, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. And I would take, I would take And I will take you, sorry, and you shall reign over what your souls desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and commandments as David, my servant did, I will be with you and I will build um, a sure house as I built for David. And this I will give to you. 
and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So here's the prophecy. I'm going to, in just next chapter, I'm, it's going to happen. So this poor decision-making by Rehoboam is the thing that breaks the, the, the kingdom in half or, you know, tears it into 10 and 2. But nevertheless, it all was going to happen. All of it was going to happen. And so uh, Ahijah the prophet tells Solomon that it's going to happen. And, or, or Jeroboam that it's going to happen. And he knows that it's going to happen. And here it comes about. And so this story, as we see it, Dale Davis says this. This story filtered through verse 15 should prove then therefore a massive encouragement to Christ's flock or Jesus's church. Yahweh has always predicted it. And here is bringing his word to pass. The prophecy from first Kings 11 is coming to pass in first Kings chapter 12. And verse 15 testifies that human hubris never catches Yahweh by surprise. Man's rebellion. Man's rebellion never catches Yahweh by surprise. Um, he uses his rebellion, then therefore his glory. Big men are simply little servants of Yahweh's word. And so man's rebellion is always still operating under man's foolish plans are still always operating under the sovereign hand of God, which is good news for us. So the first thing we should realize is... Um, Foolish man-made plans that are happening, whether in our own lives or people around us that might seek to harm us or just in general that we just don't like happening. They're all still being done and operating under the sovereign hand of God who's stronger. That's the first thing. Number one, the sovereignty of God is stronger than foolish man-made plans, which means they're not, the, the foolish man-made plans are not necessarily contra to God's sovereign plans. Sometimes they're exactly what God wants to happen to bring about his sovereign plans. Because we live in a Genesis 3 world. How does all that go together? It's very difficult to understand. There's no doubt about it. But nevertheless, that's what's going on here. So perhaps you're one of two people right now to try to, to, try to give you a direct application. Um, perhaps one, you're the hubris filled person. You're the rebellious person flaunting your freedom and exercising, uh, the things that you know are contrary to scripture, trying to say, God, I can do whatever I want when I want, how I want, when I want to do it. But nevertheless, you're still under the sovereign hand of God. The truth is you're still under the sovereign hand of God or even more tragically, because this certainly can happen. You're a loved one or you're someone who falls under the, the, ramifications of the hubris filled person of the rebellious person. And you are receiving the the negative impact from that. And I just want to say, if you are that loved person, if you're the person that's uh, recipient of that, um, nothing can be more difficult than that. I think Uh, nothing can be more taxing or tiring day in and day out that that's happening to you. Um, And you want it to stop. But I can say Rest under the sovereign hand of God, knowing that Romans eight twenty eight is still true for you right now. In the end, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What does that mean right now? I don't know. It could mean right now today things could change. Or it might just mean ultimately when we're with him and his kingdom, it, it's going to be far better. And I can promise you it will be there. This, this life is nothing but a blink of an eye compared to the eternities that will be with him in heaven. And so if our entire 80 years we have are difficult, 
compared to the ten thousands upon years that we have with him, which are going to be unbelievably great forever with ever increasing joy, then that's good. And so it should be helpful to know that God is sovereign there and then therefore over our circumstances right now. And we should trust him. The most difficulty of circumstances, the most difficult things that are happening right now, we should trust him. The second thing is this. Um, so after this difficult decision or this not smart decision that Rehoboam makes, uh, he decides he wants to make sure that everybody understands he's the man. I'm the strong man. And so he sends uh, one of his men out, Adoram, out to kind of enforce his rules. So this is what happens in verse 16. So when Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, did not listen to this good advice, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? What, we have no inheritance of the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your house, David. So Israel went to their tents, and Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam, so he's, he's ruling and reigning. He's going to be harsh king, all these bad things. And he wants to make sure he under, everybody understands, I'm in charge here. So he sends this guy, Adoram, out and says, uh, so then King, uh, King Rehoboam sent Adoram who was taskmaster over the forced labor. His job was to go out and get everybody, you know, crack the whip and make sure everybody realizes I'm the scorpion guy, not the whip guy. I'm the really tough guy. And so we went out to do this. All of Israel stoned him to death with stones. So he had a rocky reception, no doubt about it. Okay. All right. I just throw it out there to see if it would land. Um, Nevertheless, so it was bad, right? It didn't go well for him. This man... Because of the hard heart of Rehoboam was killed. He was killed. So he had, it says in verse 16 or uh, 18, they stoned him to death with stones and King Rehoboam hurried to his Mount of Chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel uh, has been in this rebellion in the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David, but just the tribe of Judah only. So here, here, here happens the split, basically what's happened. Rehoboam's going to be the tough guy. It doesn't go so well. Adoram gets killed. And now the, the split's happening to where Jeroboam, the one had, that had been in Egypt, is going to start taking over the prophecy that happened in 1 Kings 11. He's going to start taking over 10, uh, the split from Israel and Judah. If you're not familiar with Old Testament Israel history, you know, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons, you know, that had, that had happened uh, back whenever you had Joseph. And eventually, uh, Joseph was one of them. Um, too many names, and they're all, I, I didn't plan to say all this. So anyway, let's just keep going. Um, so you, you keep going, and then you have the kingdom, you have the 12 tribes, and then eventually you have the split. You have 10 to the north and 2 to the south. And um, David and, well, really Saul and David and Solomon all ruled over all 12 tribes, a united monarchy over all 12. And all of a sudden, here comes the split. And remember, First Kings is all about the downfall, right? If First Samuel and Second Samuel are, finally there's a king over Israel, a human king over Israel. First Kings and Second Kings are the downfall. So here, we, we've already passed the best point of the monarchy of Israel where they actually have a king. And now here comes a split. And this is where it starts. Um, and so here we have the split where Jeroboam is going to go to the, to the north. And all of a sudden, for the rest of the time, there's going to be two kingdoms in Israel. Ten to the, to the north and two to the south. They're eventually going to get taken over at different points, etc. But here we are. Jeroboam is going to go to the 10 to the north, uh, Rehoboam 10 to to the south. Um, And here the split happens. So Adoram here, because of Rehoboam's hard heart, he gets killed. 
This man, because of the hard heart of Rehoboam, is killed. And I know you might be thinking, so many people die in the Old Testament fun. Why, why is it that you're emphasizing this one guy? Like, so many people die, like, over and over all the time. Uh, why stop and concentrate on this one? Well, obviously, because all people matter. And anytime anybody dies, no matter who they are, no matter how uh, distant, you know, they are kind of mentioned in the Bible, everybody, when they die, it matters, and it's tragic. So, Adam matters, and his death matters. Uzzah matters whenever he reached out and tried to help and touch the ark when it was on the cart and trying to do a good thing dies. That matters. Uh, or even Achan in Joshua 7. Like, he, he really did some terrible stuff. Stealing, uh, stealing the, 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 the stuff that they weren't supposed to steal after the war. Like, even he dies. So everybody matters in the Bible, even if they seeming like everybody's dying here. Why does, why does this guy matter? And so, um, because everybody matters. And so, even more so... Um, this man didn't die because of his own foolishness. He died because of the foolishness of someone else, which is even more tragic. And so, um, all of these things happen because God has allowed man, us, his human agents. He has allowed us to have the power of moral choice. He's allowed us and given us, uh, because we're not robots. We're not automatons. We don't just walk around, uh, like with no volition whatsoever. He's given us the power to make moral decisions. And because we live in a Genesis three world where we will make poor decisions, these kinds of things happen. Our, our bad decisions don't just affect us, but they still also affect others. God's sovereign over this, but man is still responsible. And so the second thing is this, you can put it up. Man can still rebel and tragedy can still befall them under a sovereign God. This is an important note. Man can still rebel and tragedy can still befall them under a sovereign God. Here that's the case. Rehoboam is acting rebellious and tragedy befalls Adam because of this. And all this still happens under the sovereign hand of God. Because he's given us the ability to make real decisions. Your decisions, my decisions that we make are real choices. Now... How in the world it works out, again, where God's sovereign and man's still responsible, it is a mystery ultimately when you get down into it, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, it's all true. The Bible over and over wants us to believe that God's totally sovereign and man's totally responsible for his moral decisions. Um, so just to give you an illustration. So uh, a few years back, there was a girl in the church that had come to Christy and I. She wanted to talk. And she was really struggling. She was uh, a college student and she was struggling terribly. She, she didn't believe in God. Um, her brother did. And we knew him and she wanted to talk to us uh, because whenever she was uh, finishing high school and going into college, a, a tragedy had happened to her where her boyfriend had been killed and she was struggling terribly with it. Struggling, why would God allow this to happen? Uh, if God's good and God could stop it, why didn't he stop it? And so we talked about Genesis 3. We talked about how whenever the fall happened, that uh, everything is, is terrible now. Like before the fall, everything was wonderful. Everything was perfect. And after the fall, everything's bad. And so because God also has given us the power to make moral decisions and we make these decisions ourselves, now we live in a fallen world. God does have the ability, of course, to step in and stop bullets or, or change things. But this is not how he set up the world. He set up the world for 
things to happen in a normal fashion. And he set it up perfect in Genesis 1 and 2 that we would make perfect decisions and that we would follow after him and that we would enjoy fellowship with him in the cool of the day, etc. Genesis, I think it's 2.8. Um, and how we would have perfect fellowship with him. But he also created us uh, to be able to make those decisions volitionally. Like he wants us to want to do those things. He didn't just create robots and so that we always make the right decision and he, he doesn't receive more glory that way. Whenever we really make the decision to, to honor him, then he receives more glory. But Adam and Eve, they were temp- they gave into temptation and they failed. And now sin runs through everything. And so every decision that we make is tainted with sin. And so we talked about how um, in order for God to remain God and to be good, that he still has to give us the power to make moral decisions and still be sovereign. So after a long discussion of Genesis 3 and all the ramifications of it, she began to understand that God had given man the power to make moral decisions and that he's sovereign. We talked for a long time. And in the end, she understood that God was still good and that he, he, by being good, he lets us make decisions. And so uh, this tragedy that happened was still a tragedy. But ultimately, uh, when, when we look at all the things that are happening, um, God is still good ultimately in these things. And the best thing that we can do is believe in God, trust in his sovereignty. And as we talked for a long time, and it was a long conversation, she actually by the end said that she wanted to put her faith in Christ. She wanted to surrender and receive forgiveness in Christ right there. It was, it was a long conversation and I'm really summarizing it. Um, but nevertheless, um, this difficulty had happened in her life and through a bigger understanding of the sovereignty of God and his goodness, she actually surrendered her heart to God. And so our tragedies that happen are difficult and they're real that happen in our lives. Never they're, they're, Quite difficult, but the unfolding sovereign plan of God might be difficult for us to understand, and that's quite normal. But what we can realize is that since God, who's good and always good, and everything He does is right and good, has actually given us the power to make real decisions, and so that whenever we trust Him in super difficult decisions like this, when when people rebel against us or and tragedy befalls us, whenever those things happen, that we can believe in Him, we can trust Him, and we can follow Him. Even among the worst things that happen in our life, because he's good, we can rejoice that the sovereign God is sovereign over all things. We can trust him and we can believe in that. And we should also just, um, it's easy to get bogged down. And I shouldn't say bogged down because that sounds insensitive and not pastoral. It's easy to, um, in the midst of our own difficulties, find it hard to come up through that and kind of see the bigger picture. Because when things happen to us, they're quite difficult and they, I'm not minimizing them. They really are. But we should realize that anything that happens to us, any tragedy that befalls us pales in comparison to the biggest injustice ever. Any injustice you ever receive at the hand of someone else pales in comparison to the greatest injustice ever. And so I should say, I think that's helpful to think this way. Um, anything that happens is not the worst tragedy ever. Any injustice that happens in the world ever is nothing compared to the worst injustice. The worst injustice, the worst tragedy to ever happen is the death of Jesus. Because he was totally innocent. So I'm not saying you, you and I deserve tragedies that happen. I'm saying since we're sinners and we live in a sinful world, that's a product of where we live. But Jesus lived a perfect life. Anything that ever happened to him that was negative or terrible, especially the cross. He never deserved. He lived a perfect life. 
And so Isaiah explains it to us this way in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 7. Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears, he was silent and he opened not his mouth. Remember, everything that happens to him, which is the greatest tragedy ever, none of it he deserved. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generations who considered that he was cut off by the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man with his death. Let me read that again. And, it, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He had never done anything wrong. Now, don't miss this, okay? It was not ultimately the hand of man that brought this about. This is what verse 10 tells us right here in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord... To crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of God the Father to put to death the Son. All this is happening under the sovereign. The greatest tragedy and justice ever all happened completely under the sovereignty of God. For us. For us. He goes on and says... When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the unrighteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's us. So the greatest injustice in the world brought about by the sovereignty of God, brought about what is ultimately the greatest good ever. Namely, yours and my righteousness. (laughs) Like we don't ever receive forgiveness without this. And so we are accounted righteous and he bear, he bore our iniquities. Therefore I will divide a portion as with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the greatest injustice ever brought about the greatest good ever, which is namely, if we confess our sin, if we say, Lord, That should have been my death on the cross. Please forgive me of all my sin and all of his righteousness therefore given to us and all of our sin is put on him on the cross. Then we are are forgiven of all our sin and now we're declared righteous. If the greatest injustice ever can bring about the greatest good ever, namely our righteousness, then it just goes to understand or with logic, the injustices that we're receiving can still bring about great good in our lives. So the second thing is, Man can still rebel and tragedy can befall them under sovereignty of God. And God can bring about good in those things. So his death, though it was terrible, could still bring about good. And we'll see that it does in just a second in the conclusion. Um, So last thing is this. Uh, Number three, our sovereign God can still overflow with kindness and mercy to rebels who do not seek his will, nor heed his counsel. So this is maybe the most encouraging thing about this, this story in the middle of just rampant rebellion, like Rehoboam has thus far made no good decisions. I'm going to be tougher than my dad. I'm going to send this guy out so that he has this rocky reception. And now, uh, I'm going to start a war, a civil war, and we're going to have a civil war in Israel. We're going to start killing each other. 
That's what I, I, that's the next step. It just gets worse, right? Let's, let's start a civil war and Israel just start killing Israel. And what God could have done in the midst of that is to say, well, you've come this far, then I'm just going to let you keep going. But here's our good sovereign God in the midst of poor decision-making. He can in his sovereignty reach in and say, okay, that's, that's stop, stop. That's why I say in number three, our sovereign God can overflow with kindness and mercy to rebels who do not seek his will. This isn't in the midst of rebellion. This isn't in the midst of seeking after the will of God. Rehoboam isn't like a great decision maker really seeking after God's will here. He is running the opposite way of God's will. And God could just let him keep doing that. And he's like, okay, stop. Which means in your life, in the midst of terrible rebellion, he still can overflow with mercy to you and say, okay, that's enough. That's what's going to happen here. Verse 21. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, 180,000 chosen warriors. He gets his two tribes together. Here it is. To fight against the house of Israel. He's ready to fight the other ten tribes. Let's just fight them. So I can be the king over everybody. Um, To restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And here it is. Unbelievable kindness and mercy. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, a different a different prophet, this chapter, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, to the rest of the people, uh, th- thus says the Lord your God. It's like, just go say this, prophet, because <laughs> they're about to have a civil war. You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man, return to your home, for this thing's from me. And astonishingly, so they listened <laughs> to the word of the Lord and went home. According to the word of the Lord. So verse 15 and verse 24 are these kind of little refrains at the end of these things telling us God's sovereign and everything that's happened is God's sovereign. It's God's sovereignty. So this is, I mean, again, you can moralize it and say, so they don't listen to their friends, but they finally listen to, to the Lord. You can do that, right? But I think the bigger picture thing is to see this. Our sovereign guy can still overflow with kindness and mercy to rebels who don't seek his will. There was nothing Nothing going on in Rehoboam's life right now that shows that he deserved this kindness. He is poor decision-making one after another. And in the midst of that, God stops, which means for us, in your life, the same thing can happen. In your family member's life that you are just distraught over, that keeps making terrible decisions. God can do this. God can just say, all right, stop. No more bad decisions. The mercy of God overflows to Israel and stops this terrible civil war. And what did they do? Astonishingly enough, they listen to the word. This is amazing because they haven't been listening at all. And all of a sudden, congrats to Rehoboam for listening to the Lord and heeding his warning. Because he hasn't been listening um, over and over beforehand. The point is not necessarily that Rehoboam finally listened to God when he should have listened to the older men earlier. Instead, the point is that God is so good that he can and sometimes will be overflow with mercy to us and keep us from terrible things happening. So when you're facing temptation and sin, you actually have this same measure to you. Now, here's what I want to be careful here, because you probably won't have a prophet of God. I'm going to not say probably you will not have a prophet of God come tap you on the shoulder and say, uh, you might have a friend, but you won't have 
a prophet come tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, this thing you're about to do, you should not do it. Uh, or shoot you a text and say, hey, don't do this thing. This is bad. Uh, they won't be a prophet. They might be a friend, uh, but it won't be a prophet. But here's the thing that you do have. All right. So you don't have that. But what you do, when it says in here, so they listened to the word of the Lord and they went home according to the word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, prophets spoke the word of the Lord. Today, the word of the Lord has been spoken to us. It's right here. We have it. And so we, when we're in the midst of a difficult decision, we don't need a prophet to shoot us a text or come tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, don't do this. We simply just need to be reading this and this will tell us. And so we have the word of the Lord speaking to us, giving us wise counsel, telling us, um, what to do. We have a sovereign God who has spoken to us once and for all through his word, showing us with kindness and mercy, how not to rebel against his will, how not to rebel or, or so that we can heed his counsel. So the word of the Lord is speaking to you through his word. It means this God's word is totally sufficient. It's literally all you need. And so our sovereign God still overflows with kindness and mercy to rebels by giving us his word. So what do you do when God shines down mercy upon you? What do you do whenever you have a rebellious heart? I have a rebellious heart and we're making poor decisions. And he sends his word to you via his word and says, don't do this. Instead, like what they did, what, what did they do? They obeyed. So what do we do? The same thing. We obey him. That's not weakness. It's finally being wise. Obeying God is not weakness. It's finally being wise. And so the Lord in the midst of this wants us to see that he wants us to obey him in the midst of uh, living our lives because his sovereign hand is over us, of course, and we have the power to make moral decisions, but he wants us to obey him as well. Now, here's here's the last conclusion. I want to conclude in a story in the middle kind of uh, all about God's judgment. I want to make sure that we see God's mercy peeking behind the clouds because it's in the text. His mercy, it, a lot of sovereignty, a lot of bad stuff happened, but um, there is uh, mercy peeking behind the clouds. And the writer, remember the writer, another little side note of teaching, all right? There's this big fancy seminary word called revelation. And I don't mean the last book of the Bible. I mean, literally how God reveals himself. God reveals himself through his word. So do I have time for this? Uh, Don't I'm going to say it real fast. So um, this is just a quick way to think the way to understand the building of the ark. I'm just picking any story in the old Testament is not to uh, call Bill and Ted Or get a flux capacitor and go back in time to where you get to see the actual event of Noah building the ark and saying, hey, what's going on here? How can I understand what God's doing, Noah, as you build this ark? That's not the way that we understand um, God because... God has told us that his, his word is his revelation. So the, the revelation or the revealing of what God wants us to understand about himself is not going back to the event 4,000 years ago and seeing the event happen. 
That's not where the revelation of God is. That's not the location of his revelation. The location of his revelation is in his word. So the best way to understand um, what God's doing in the building of the ark is not getting in your flux capacitor and flying back in time and doing it. Instead, if you went to Noah, the best thing he could say to you is like, I don't know. You should probably just wait until uh, Moses writes the Bible and read what Moses writes because he's going to be an inspired author. Uh, And when God tells us in Genesis what he's doing, it's right there in the text. The best way to understand God is to read it in the Bible. That's the best answer that Noah could ever give you about understanding the ark. It's not being in the event, seeing the event. It's instead reading it in the text. The text is the location of the revelation of God. It's the place where God reveals himself. The Bible. It's in the text. So just just a side note of how to understand the Bible. It's not in the event. It's not in the reconstruction of any historical event. It's in the text. That's why I say the Bible is totally sufficient. The Bible is all that it needs to help you understand God. You don't need more. You just need his word. Anyway, it's helpful to have other things, but it's not necessary. All right, back to this. So the text, the text, the writer in this text, as he's writing this is wanting you to see grace peeking behind the clouds. And so writers, when they write, they, they want you to make sure that you see that. So the revealing of God is in the Bible. So when you read the Bible, Always be looking for the, the clues because every writer is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter one twenty one. men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter one twenty one. And so whenever there, you see these things, notice them because the Lord's warning you to see grace behind the clouds in this story. Because in a story about judgment, we still see it. Go to uh, chapter 12, look at verse 16 and just ask yourself, I wonder why this is here. I wonder why this is here. Start at verse 16. Um, you should see in verses 16 through 20, I have it circled four times, the name David. And when all Israel saw that King did not listen to them as the prophets answered the King, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Why are they talking about David? Like he's been dead for a while. Why aren't they picking other kings, more recent people? Why, are they, why aren't they talking about Solomon? Why aren't they talking about Solomon's house? Um, now look at your own house, David. And then let's go to verse 19. So Israel has been rebellion against the house of David to this day. And verse 20. So when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called to the assembly and made him king over Israel. Those none that followed the house of David, but only the tribe of Judah. Why is it they keep saying David? Like he's been dead for a while. He died in chapter 1. Solomon was the last king. Why is it that the writer, it wants to keep mentioning David. What is his point? Obviously, as a reader, the whole, you can guess. And we've been talking about this over and over. The repeating of David here is meant to draw all of our minds back to 2 Samuel 7. Remember, we talked about this when we talked about David. 2 Samuel 7 is where God comes and makes this amazing Davidic promise. David, guess what? You and from you will be the promised Messiah. Like Jesus comes from you, David, is the, is the promise in essence that he says. And so the writer is wanting you to just remember, this is a terrible story. Oh, yeah, but guess what? Messiah's coming. So there's, there's a great little uh, grace behind the clouds of a tragic story. Messiah's coming. And as it says in 2 Samuel 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, but Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. 
wait a second. The kingdom's falling apart. And he's saying, don't forget, your throne's going to be established forever. The kingdom's falling apart. Your throne's going to be, well, it sure doesn't look like it. And so the writers want you to see that there's no level of disobedience done by man that overthrows the Davidic covenant. There's no level of disobedience of man that overthrows the promises of God made to David forever that Messiah comes from you. There's no work that man can falsify that can do that can falsify the promise made to David. Nothing can prevent the coming Messiah. Nothing can prevent the establishing of the kingdom forever made by King Jesus. Nothing. None of this stuff. These are just flashes in the pan that nothing, they can never, ever make it so that God's promise can't happen. So we need to understand this great promise then made on this side of the cross. It was made years and years ago. Let's look at it on this, on this part, the, on this side of the cross. The sad part is that our sin, our folly, our faithlessness, all these things can mangle and all of them can tarnish the great glory that Jesus deserves. Our sin doesn't end the covenant, but it can show how much we prize and cherish the glory of God. Our sin can show Do I prize and cherish the glory of God or not? But here's the glorious part. Our sin and our faithfulness can in no way ever derail or eclipse the forgiveness of God. Just like whatever they're doing can't end the kingdom of God. Nothing that we do can ever end the glory of God or eclipse it. Nothing defeats the promise of God made to David shown to him fully in Christ. And no level of disobedience for them can end it. Therefore, no level of disobedience on our behalf can ever overthrow the forgiveness of God in Christ. There's no level of disobedience that you can do that can end that. That's amazing news. So what should we do? The response is to revel in that truth. Literally revel in it. Take great delight and joy with loud, noisy celebration. If someone is a reveler, that means they're really loud. We should literally revel in this great truth. There is no level of disobedience if you're in Christ that will ever overthrow the promise made to you, to David and to all of us who are followers or in the tribe of David because we're engrafted in. There's no level of disobedience that takes you out of the kingdom. Revel in this. Take great delight and joy with loud, noisy celebration that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things and that despite our wicked rebellion against him, he keeps his covenant. He forgives our sin. We should be happy. We should enjoy God forever because of this, because he's good and his love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like there's a thousand other things I could say, but I have run out of time and I pray that, uh, The collection of all these thoughts on your sovereignty um, will be applicable in these moments, but also for a long time. And that you'll use this in the lives of all of us uh, to love who you are and love your sovereignty in our life. And just absolutely adore that nothing overthrows the promise of Jesus in our life. Thank you so much for being a good God. Thank you for loving us and caring, caring for us. And thank you for, in the midst of our difficulties overseeing us and walking us through tragedies. You're so good to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.